Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our Q&A with When Diplomacy Fails. The last several months have been very eventful. We've been doing an awful lot of stuff, whether it's doing that 30 Years War series, releasing that 30 Years War book, or starting our PhD. So I thought it was a good time to cap off the last few introductory episodes with a Q&A, so you could send me any of your questions that you might have, and we could clear that up, and then move on to the actual narrative of the 30 Years War. Which, sorry if you were looking forward to that and I kind of cut you off for four weeks, but I can assure you the wait will be worth it. Thanks very much for joining me. If you weren't aware, my name is Zach Twomley. I run this podcast, When Diplomacy Fails, for the last eight and a half years or so. And over the last month or so, I asked you to send in my questions. And that's what we're going to be working from here. Those questions that you sent in that were just so burning, they had to be answered by yours truly. A huge thanks to all of you for joining me for supporting this show on Patreon or anywhere else, and for ordering that book if you have already. Thank you as well for your patience and waiting for it to be delivered. I am earnestly doing my best, I'm a one-man show here, to try and send out those signed copies as quickly as I can. But if you're not waiting for a signed copy and you just want to order a book full stop, then head on over to our publisher's page or to Amazon or wherever you get your books from, and it will be there. So we're going to start with the 30 Years War questions. And the first question is posed by guys who I'm quite familiar with because I starred on their show a while ago, Diplomacy Games Podcast, which you should definitely check out. And they asked the question, of all the leaders or countries in the 30 Years War, who behaved most like an excellent diplomacy player, schmoozing and stabbing their way through Europe? Well, I don't know about stabbing, but certainly there was a lot of schmoozing going on. There are several candidates for this title of head intriguer, I suppose you could say. But to me, Richelieu really takes the cake. Cardinal Richelieu was the premier of France from about the mid-1620s to 1643. And during that time, he controlled French foreign policy and really made sure that France stood opposed to the Habsburgs. To do this, he had to fight several domestic battles at home not the least of which was fighting against the Huguenots, or French Protestants, who were trying to fight for their rights, but 
in the process of doing that, they were undermining the actual authority of the French government, and that couldn't stand. So Richelieu couldn't rest easy until they were defeated. And they were defeated pretty much by the late 1620s. And this meant that throughout the 1630s, French foreign policy really upped the ante, really turned up the volume in its anti-Habsburg ambitions and rhetoric. And as a result, by 1635, Cardinal Richelieu led France into war against both branches of the Habsburg family. The vision for defeating Spain and leaving France supreme, which Richelieu cherished, was the same vision that Louis XIV was still pursuing many years later. The major difference, of course, was that Richelieu knew how to be subtle and expansionist in a way that Louis XIV did not. And as a result, Louis turned Europe against him, while Richelieu gathered Europe around him. And there's a key point to be seen in that. Richelieu wasn't just fighting the war against the Habsburgs alone. He was wise enough and talented enough to actually persuade, or cajole, or in some cases just meet other countries where they were, and build up a coalition of powers that also weren't too fond of the Habsburgs. Richelieu was able to do this despite the major religious differences between the different parties. Within the anti-Habsburg coalition, you had Catholic France, the Calvinist Dutch, and Lutheran Sweden. So there was an awful lot of religious difference going on, and we might expect this to be a major problem, especially before the Peace of Westphalia supposedly made religious conflict impossible. It didn't do that, but it did at least make religious conflict less likely. It made religion matter a little bit less in foreign affairs, but it didn't completely remove it from the equation. At this stage, though, in the 1620s and 30s, Richelieu was very much going against the grain. Had France just sided with Catholic, Habsburg, Spain or Austria, it wouldn't have been that unusual. There was a large party of French statesmen and nobles who very much wanted this policy to occur. And we'll talk a bit more about that later on when we have an alternative reality question of what would have happened had Richelieu basically not existed. So I'm looking forward to covering that a bit later on, but that's nearer the end of the episode, but stick around for that if you're interested. So, Manolo on Patreon wants to ask about the general population of Bohemia. Were most on board with the revolt? And if so, did they want Frederick as their new king? Also, were the ones who chose the king of Bohemia elected themselves? A lot of questions here. The Bohemia that Manolo is talking about refers to, I presume, the Bohemian rebels, who basically kicked the Habsburgs out of the windows in Prague in May 1618, and went on from there. The revolt was basically crushed by November 1620 with the Battle of White Mountain. So between May 1618 and November 1620, there was a kind of rebellious provisional government going on in Bohemia. And what Manolo is asking here really is how this government was elected. And if it was elected, how many of them were all that happy with this policy of direct confrontation and rebellion against the Habsburgs, and how many at the same time were happy to have Frederick as their king. A lot of these questions go to the very heart of the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, but the short answer is it's kind of difficult to know how much support Frederick actually had from the Bohemian people themselves, and we'll probably never know that for sure. The long answer is that Frederick had the support of Bohemia's Protestant nobility, and also of the Defensors. And if you've heard the earlier episodes looking at the Bohemians in general, then you'll know who the Defensors were. But to cut a long story short, the Defensors were a council of 30 individuals that, once the rebellion happened, 
pretty much took over the day-to-day -day running of the Bohemian government. They had existed before, and they existed because of the Letter of Majesty. That was an agreement between the Habsburgs and the Bohemians before everything kicked off. You don't need to know all the details there. But the Defensors were elected. That is an important point. They were elected and appointed, but these positions were relatively new. They'd only come into force from 1611, when the Letters of Majesty were actually approved, so it was still a novel idea by 1619 when Frederick was elected by them. The act of removing one king and replacing him with another was quite unprecedented for the Bohemians, so it's again, it's hard to know how many in Bohemia would have favoured this line. The important point I want to make though is perspective. We know now that these rebels were doomed to fail, but it didn't look this way at the time for many of them, and it's likely that when they were at the peak of their powers, when there was a siege of Vienna going on and no one seemed able to stop them, that the Bohemian rebels enjoyed most support. Frederick was favoured because he could bring in yet more foreign support and connections. It wasn't necessarily that Frederick was beloved because he was such a great guy whom everyone in Bohemia really got on with. These defensors, who served as Bohemia's government, were elected themselves, as we said, by those who possessed enough property to be considered nobility, and these nobility then cast a vote. We shouldn't be looking at Bohemia as some proto-democracy, because it certainly wasn't that. Tensions arose between members of this nobility, as they varied in religious outlook and loyalty towards the Habsburgs, and it should be said that the decade leading up to 1618 had radicalised the Bohemian population to a great extent. I mean, by 1618, with their defenestration of Prague, the Bohemians had rebelled three times. And you don't get to rebel three times without some serious consequences for your country. They had rebelled before, and their grievances had been answered because of these rebellions. Basically, the Bohemians had been taught that if they went against the Habsburgs, things would generally work out well with them. Of course, in 1618, you could say that by deposing their king, Ferdinand, they crossed a line which no Bohemian should ever cross. The Bohemians were on board with the revolt because it seemed like it would be successful, but of course the support that Frederick had been promised was not nearly the same as the support he received. Those defensors who helped appoint Frederick and who ran the kingdom from the day to day were elected, but only by nobility who themselves had to possess a certain amount of property. It's a similar story to many other countries at the time, but Bohemia stands out, of course, because very few of these states at the same time were deposing their king. But it's a good question, so thanks for sending it in. Josh on Patreon asks, Other than your own book, what narrative of the Thirty Years' War is your favourite? This is a question I get asked an awful lot, and it's good on the one hand, because it shows that you guys genuinely want to read more, which is a great thing to hear, and it's a great thing to be able to help you do. The issue is, when you come to literature on the Thirty Years' War, there's a kind of sliding scale of narratives. And what I mean by that is, you can get a very large book by Peter H. Wilson called Europe's Tragedy, which covers the Thirty Years' War basically from its beginning to its end in an awful lot of detail. The problem with Peter H. Wilson's book, or at least what some people have said, is that it's very dry and it's not great for a beginner's introduction to the conflict, or even someone who isn't that completely familiar with everything that goes on. If you would like a less detailed, but perfectly scholarly and more accessible account, I would recommend going for the likes of Geoffrey Parker, whose book Europe in Crisis, 1598-1648, was the first and still the best book that I ever read on the Thirty Years' War. It's the perfect combination of 
information, straightforward facts, accessible writing style, and pretty much everything good that you could want from a history book. I got it for 10 cent in a charity shop all those years ago, and I haven't looked back since. It was one of the best purchases I ever made. I mean, for crying out loud, it didn't cost me all that much, and I'm still using it to this day. So I definitely would recommend Jeffrey Parker if you're just starting out. He doesn't seem to get an awful lot of love, because I think he started working on the 30 Years' War and published most of his stuff before the 30 Years' War really became famous, if you put that in quotes. Famous. And since that moment, a lot more narratives of the 30 Years' War have come out. But Wedgwood's book is also good if you're starting out too. She presents it more like a story, although I like to think that while I present the war as a story, I also try to present the more scholarly aspects of it at the same time. Wedgwood does this, but since her book is about 80 years old at this stage, a few of the things that she claims, such as things about Frederick's character, for instance, have since been debunked. So, if you're unsure about some of the claims she makes, do double-check them. But by and large, Wedgwood's book, simply called The Thirty Years' War, is very good and very readable. And, fun fact, if you have an Audible subscription, you can actually get the audiobook of Wedgwood's book. And it's read in such a way that I really find it quite engaging and quite good. I can't remember who the narrator is, but I think you will enjoy him. And I think if you're unsure of where to start with The Thirty Years' War, you could do far worse than that audiobook by Wedgwood herself. Jeffrey Parker, you should know, has since released many more books on The Thirty Years' War, since this one, my favourite, Europe in Crisis, came out in 1979. He has also released edited collections of essays on The Thirty Years' War, simply called Thirty Years' War, it's very, very good. If you just search Jeffrey Parker, 30 Years War, a whole load of stuff will come up and you can make your choice from there. But you won't regret it, whatever you do choose. Andrew via email then asks, You don't go into too much detail in your book or the show, at least not from what I've seen, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the Ottoman-Persian Wars and explain what kind of difference they made. Did the Habsburgs know much about the Persians, and did they try to help them? Well, I'd be happy to help, Andrew, and I'm sure you can appreciate why I had to draw at least some lines in the sand during this narrative, and not cover the Ottoman-Persian wars in as much details as I wanted to. Otherwise, you could easily add another 200 pages to my already swollen book. To put it simply, the Ottomans and Persians, also known as Safavid Persia, or Safavid Iran to some people, engaged in two major wars during this period. The first was from 1603 to 1618, that saw the Persians victorious, and the second conflict from 1623 to 1639 saw the Ottomans victorious, and take back Baghdad in particular, which had been captured by the Persians in their first war. Now I say first war, but actually the Ottomans and Persians had been fighting for many years, pretty much since the beginning of the 1500s. It just so happened that these two wars coincided perfectly with the Thirty Years' War in the West, and it meant that the Ottomans were mostly aloof from the entire thing. Mostly being the operative word, of course, we know that their vassal Transylvania was very active, and that it intervened several times in the conflict. In fact, a fascinating set of chain reactions took place when Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania invaded Hungary and then Austria in autumn 1619. When this happened, Emperor Ferdinand turned to his brother-in-law, the King of Poland, to launch a diversionary attack and help bail him out. This was done by the King of Poland, Sigismund III, 
who was only too happy to take some Transylvanian land. The only problem was the Transylvanian overlord, the Ottomans, who were not happy with the Polish actions and made war on Poland from 1620 to 22 to punish the Poles for their actions. Poland suffered terribly during this war because its armies were already having to contend with the Swedes. If you remember the timestamps of those Persian wars, you'll notice that the Ottomans made war on Poland during their brief intermission between the two wars, and by 1623, the Ottoman-Polish war was over, and the Persian and Ottoman troops were back at war again. Safavid Iran, to give you some background, came into being from 1501, and it served as an effective counterweight to Turkish power in the Middle East. The Safavid dynasty would fall by 1736, but by that time, the power of the Turks had long waned as well. When it comes to questions of how connected or involved the Habsburgs were in making sure that these wars continued, the short answer is that the Habsburgs really didn't need to do all that much. There was plenty of reasons for the Ottomans and the Persians to fight each other to a standstill, mostly because they were just rivals in a region which was very hotly contested. Possession of the holy sites of Islam was a serious bone of contention. There was also, and this will sound familiar because we've looked at Western Europe so much, there was also a surprising amount of religious difference between the Persians and the Turks. And by that I mean the Ottoman Empire was mostly Sunni. Sunni Islam was the same version of Islam that was followed by the Mughal Empire in India. But the Shiites had taken hold in Persia. So in that sense, it's a very similar story in a way. It's kind of an anagram of Christian states in Western Europe. Whether you had Protestant or Catholic, here in the East, you had the Shiite Persians facing off against the Sunni Turks. To the West, of course, these differences probably didn't seem all that big a deal. And they also probably didn't really understand them. But you could argue that the same could be true for the Ottomans too. There were certainly ambassadors from the Habsburg court in the relevant capitals, but they didn't need to do all that much. And their resources weren't that heavily invested in the East, having been so heavily invested elsewhere. So thank you, Andrew, for that question. And now Jack via email asks, Are you ever tempted to present the Thirty Years' War narrative from a lowly soldier's perspective? And are there interesting or famous sources available if you do so? Well, thanks for your question, Jack. I have absolutely been tempted. And I should tell you all that I have this dream or pipe dream to someday do a series of novels on the Thirty Years' War because I feel like it's really, really underutilized as a setting for a novel or a film or what have you. And I think that the scenes from the battles would make tremendous fodder for a novel or what have you. So it's definitely something I want to do. But as far as source material goes, you should definitely, if you're interested, check out Robert Monroe. Because Robert Monroe was a Scottish soldier who served in Gustavus Adolphus's army and who left the diary, which has since been called Monroe, his expedition with the worthy Scots regiment called McKay's. And this work has been reprinted and reissued several times. I believe it's even available on Google Books. It's highly readable, and it essentially consists of Robert Monroe giving us the details of his day-to-day experiences when serving with Gustavus Adolphus or other Protestant armies during the Thirty Years' War. It is, as far as I'm aware, the best first-hand soldier's account for the Thirty Years' War, 
bar none. Now there may be some in other different languages, particularly in German, but as far as the English language goes, this is certainly the best primary source you can get. That again is Robert Monroe, so check him out if you haven't done so already. Simon on Twitter then asks a very technical question, which of course we do like, and it's kind of a two-part question, so let's just get into this. Simon asks, there are two well-known external semi-deterministic events which might pertain to the Thirty Years' War. The first is climate variations, and the second is the influx of New World gold and silver into Europe post-1500. Can you comment on each as a causal factor in the Thirty Years' War? And, if you like, the nature of causality, and maybe even evaluate their relative importance. Well, slow down there, Simon. This is getting dangerously close to a university question. But I'll certainly do my best to answer these questions as best as I can. First and foremost, climate definitely played a role in worsening the situation in Europe throughout the 17th century. Europe's temperature fell drastically during the first few years of the 1600s, And this led the historian Geoffrey Parker, who we've already come across, to spend a lot of time examining how important the climate factor was in making the Thirty Years' War just generally more miserable. In fact, in 2013, Geoffrey Parker released a book called Global Crisis, War, Climate Change and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. And he takes us through revolutions, droughts, famines, invasions, wars and regicides, all of which befell the mid-17th century world and wiped out as much as one-third of the global population. Geoffrey Parker reveals that climate change was the root cause by examining first-hand accounts of the crises and also scrutinising weather patterns during the 1640s and 50s. There were longer and harsher winters and there were cooler and wetter summers, basically the worst combination you could ask for. In fact, the world that Parker unearthed Sounds like a particularly miserable place to live in, with evidence of disrupted growing seasons causing malnutrition, disease, a higher death toll and fewer births. Second, to address your economic point, the influx of New World gold and silver into Europe post-1500, first of all, you know economics aren't my strong suit, but even the briefest glance at the Spanish situation in particular would show how serious their reliance on imported New World silver and gold was. In short, these precious metals had the effect, first, of catapulting Spain to new heights of power, and also of hiding some of her endemic problems, such as corruption, wastage, and a very underrated one, mass depopulation. It became nigh on impossible to raise an army in Castile by the mid-1630s, And this was due to problems which had plagued Spain for several decades already, in addition to poor policy choices like the expelling of the Moriscos. As far as causality goes, did the decline of Spain make the Thirty Years' War more likely? Or, to put it another way, did the importation of precious metals delay the decline of Spain, thus making Spanish intervention easier? Well, it's difficult to say, but it's also difficult to deny that with this economic shot in the arm, Spain had an edge over its rivals for as long as the riches kept flowing in. Think of it as like a kind of shot of adrenaline to a dying patient, or at least a patient that isn't doing so well. Suddenly this patient is up on its feet. I'm not exactly sure of the full effects of adrenaline, so don't take me at my word here, but you get the kind of analogy I'm going with. As an empire, Spain of course had great potential, and there was more to its success than simply gold and silver from the New World, 
but these aspects cannot be ignored. They played a huge role in contributing to the splendour and the power and, of course, the wealth of Spain. And by doing all of this, they also hid the problems that really should have been addressed from the beginning. We need only look at what happened in 1629, when the Dutch captured the Spanish treasure fleet, to see the knock-on effects and consequences of not having a stable supply of gold and silver. By that point, the Spanish economic system had become so dependent on this regular importation of precious metals, that without it, even day-to-day bills or more considerable bills like the soldiers' wages could be jeopardised. As a result, 1629 can kind of be seen as a turning point in the Dutch-Spanish War. From that point, the Spanish were never really able to bring the full weight of their military apparatus to bear against the Dutch. While the Dutch used the money that they had stolen from the Spanish in 1629 to build a massive army and keep up the pressure for the next 20 years. So that's that question there. Mark via email asks, How do you view Gustavus Adolphus's intervention into Germany in 1630? Do you think he was motivated by a thirst for glory, concern at Habsburg powers, concern for Protestants, or all three? But if you had to pick just one, which would you say would be the most important? Well, the simple answer to this, and Mark gave me an out for it, is that it was probably a mixture of these issues, but you did ask me to pick just one. So I'd say the very underrated point of a quest for glory and expansion, not to mention renown and triumph, were powerful incentives for Gustavus Adolphus. For political and emotional reasons, seizing triumphs was an important part of kingship during the period. Just look at the example that Louis XIV sets for us. But by winning these victories, Gustavus would also secure Sweden against its major regional foes, a la Poland and Denmark. Indeed, by these victories, Swedish power would massively supersede its old rivals, to the point that it would require the three of them, with Russia in tow, to bring Sweden down in the Great Northern War. It's easy to see Gustavus's intervention from several perspectives, though. He was genuinely worried about Habsburg penetration into the Baltic, and he did fear for Protestants if the Habsburgs were triumphant in Europe. He was also greatly peeved at Wallenstein's interference in his Polish war, when Wallenstein decided in the late 1620s to send some Habsburg veterans to fight alongside the Polish nominal ally against the Swedes, even though the Habsburgs weren't at war with the Swedes by that stage. This was seen as a big no-no in Gustavus Adolphus's camp, and he viewed it as illegal, in a sense, and something that had to be combated against. It was one of the reasons in his list of war aims and justifications, it was one of the reasons why he felt Sweden had to get involved. We can, of course, look at that primary source and Gustavus's own justification for getting involved, but really what it comes down to is a judgment call. The list of Cassus Belli's were long, but the more practical reasons for intervention, in my view, are more satisfying. Gustavus intervened in Germany not because he was a saint sent by the Protestant god to save the world from the Habsburg universal tyranny, but because he was, like any other leader of his time, ambitious and absolutely determined to cover himself in glory and thereby expand the reach and powers of his own state. A simple set of goals and ambitions which any figure at the time would have recognised, and many figures after Gustavus certainly adhered to firmly. Hold up. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day. Stay at Whole Foods Market. So with those main 30 Years War questions done, first of all, thank you for sending them all in. I couldn't get to all of them. I just covered the ones which I thought would be the most instructive and helpful. But now we're going to hit some alternative history questions here. I think some of you didn't realize you could actually do this and send me alternative history questions. But I got a few questions asking what I think would have happened if such and such didn't happen or if such and such did happen. And yes, of course, I should say we can't know for sure what would have happened, but it's always fun to speculate. So that's what I'm going to do now. So Kyle Walters on Facebook asks, what if Frederick had won at White Mountain? Well, let's just give a little bit of context. First and foremost, the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620 essentially spelled the end of Frederick's attempts to hold on to the crown of Bohemia and also fight against the Habsburgs. He was, for all intents and purposes, defeated after this unsuccessful battle, but he went into exile and continued the fight from a different place, namely the Hague, where he used his familial connections to basically remain a thorn in the side of the Habsburgs, but a thorn which wasn't all that dangerous or painful, just kind of a bit annoying. But what would have happened had he actually been victorious at White Mountain? What would have happened if Tilly's legions had been smashed outside Prague and Frederick could claim a great, spectacular victory? What would have happened had the major army of the Habsburgs at the time been destroyed? How would the Emperor have responded? I believe that if Frederick had won at White Mountain, the Emperor would certainly have continued fighting. It's unlikely Frederick could have won the second or third encounter, simply because he did not have enough resources or allies or soldiers to march against the Habsburgs. Saying that though, 
If his theoretical win at White Mountain moved other powers to become involved, say if Denmark intervened at this point instead of five years later, then things probably would have taken a turn for Vienna. But remember, at the same time, the Habsburgs were safe in the east thanks to the Polish war with Transylvania, so they could march more troops back to the west. Also, while Maximilian had managed to mobilise all his resources into the Catholic League, Frederick was still abandoned by the Evangelical Union, that union of Protestant Germans which were supposed to fight for Protestant German interests. This was unlikely to change, even with an impressive victory, unless the victory was so crushing and Frederick's forces marched in numbers suddenly towards Vienna, I don't see a great deal changing, although certainly Frederick wouldn't have been saddled with that label of the Winter King, and his whole kingship in general would have acquired a great more prestige. Historians may well have been kinder to him, but whether he could have, from the position in Bohemia, whether he could have kept the war going, is another issue. Bohemia was just too close to the Habsburgs, and all of Frederick's lands were too close to Spain and Bavaria, so really Frederick was surrounded, and unless he kept on winning battles and kept on fighting from the disadvantages that he faced, I just don't see things fundamentally changing in that respect. But Kyle asks another question as well. What if Gustavus Adolphus hadn't died at Lutzen? Well, this changes things. To present the historical timeline to you first, as is traditional, Gustavus Adolphus achieved amazing things between the years 1631-32, to and he turned the balance of power on its head in the process. But the process several times nearly cost him his life, and in the end it did cost him his life. At the Battle of Lutzen in November 1632, Gustavus was killed in action, and it was an utter disaster for the Protestants, whose leader now ceased to exist, and they were forced to carry on without him, even though many of them had only been bound together by Gustavus in the first place. Wallenstein, who Gustavus Adolphus had been fighting for the last several months, had mostly fought him to a stalemate, and Lutzen in November 1632 can be considered a Pyrrhic victory for the Swedish Protestant army. After a couple of years of campaigning though, this headless army was demoralised and vulnerable. Efforts to bring more Germans into the Swedish side didn't help all that much, and by 1634, with the Battle of Nordlingen, the Swedish efforts were turned back, and the clock seemed to return to 1629, when the Habsburgs had been triumphant. This wasn't the case, of course, the war was only getting started, but Kyle asks the very reasonable question of what would have happened if Gustavus hadn't died in late 1632, thereby leaving the anti-Habsburg League rudderless at the worst possible time. Well, of course, it's hard to say precisely. I would wager that Gustavus Adolphus's survival meant the survival of Sweden's momentum and the durability of her position. It's possible that the resurgent emperor managed to squeeze some kind of Nordlingen victory out of the battered Swedes, but it's also possible that Gustavus was capable of keeping the interested parties together long enough for a triumphant march on Vienna. Had he lived, 1633 would be the year where Gustavus worked to rally the Germans around him again, and if we still have Wallenstein's assassination happening, then that would take Gustavus Adolphus's greatest rival out of the equation too, which would have been very convenient indeed for him. Even for this leader of Protestantism to simply stay alive would have been hugely important. Gustavus was a massive boon to the propaganda efforts of the anti-Hasburg camp, and he was the perfect unifying figure to represent such a broad church of interests. 
if he held on through 1634, moving his coalition to strike at the Habsburgs again, and if he was victorious, which I believe he could well have been, then Emperor Ferdinand would have been massively demoralised. Add to this as well the possibility of French involvement from 1635, and the combination of a unified anti habsburg coalition with a powerful leader mixed with a freshly intervening France, and you could well have a premature end to the war, and a 20 years war rather than a 30 years one. We simply cannot underestimate or understate how important Gustavus was, and how much of a hole his death left in the anti habsburg League. If you take away the death, you take away the hole, and it's entirely possible that even with some difficulties, the anti habsburg coalition would have done far greater things much earlier had Gustavus stuck around. So Pierre asks via Facebook, what if Cardinal Richelieu had never risen to power, or if he had died in obscurity? This is very interesting. It obviously has massive implications, but to clarify again, we said this earlier, but Cardinal Richelieu essentially led French foreign policy from the mid-1620s till his death in 1643. During this time, once the Huguenots were sorted out at least, France followed an anti habsburg policy, though not out in the open until it declared war on the Habsburgs in 1635. Richelieu preferred proxy wars, such as those against the Habsburg interests in North Italy, for instance. He also liked to support the Dutch against the Spanish, and to support the Swedes against the Emperor with large subsidies. Gustavus Adolphus's invasion of Germany, in fact, would not have been possible without the promise of French subsidies, so you can see the importance of this supposedly neutral French minister purely from that fact alone. It should also be said that French society was not uniformly anti habsburg Within the French court, Louis XIII found that many courtiers and nobles would have preferred to follow a militantly pro-Catholic, pro-Hasburg line. Louis XIII was married to a Spanish princess after all, and his mother was known to be close to the Devotes faction, a faction which favoured anti-Protestant policies and which even debated soliciting Spanish aid for its Huguenot problem. Richelieu pulled these individuals away from the trappings of power and installed his own men there instead. But what if Richelieu had been absent from these proceedings? What if, in fact, Richelieu had died of pneumonia, as he very well could have done, since he had caught that disease while living the life of a soldier in his early 20s? Had that happened, had Richelieu died in obscurity before he ever became known for what he was famous for, a power vacuum would have resulted at the top level of French government, which the weak-willed king, Louis XIII, could never have filled himself. Instead, it's almost certain that Louis's mother would have filled the gap, and consequently, that French foreign policy would have become much more pro-Habsburg. Faced with this reality, the Dutch would have been very much imperiled, though it's still not certain that the Dutch would have been reconquered by Spain, because this hadn't happened before 1618. Of more importance would be the war in Germany. Imagine a Europe with no meddling France. This might sound like heaven to Ferdinand or to the King of Spain, but it wouldn't erase the existence of anti habsburg powers. Who would they turn to in that event? And could they turn to anyone? The picture certainly seems very grim. 
I don't see how Gustavus could have supported himself, and without the Franco-Spanish distractions in North Italy, the Habsburgs would have been far more powerful in Germany as well. Simply put, Richelieu was one of, if not the most important individual on the anti-Habsburg side. Through intrigue at home, skillful and realistic diplomacy abroad, and no shortage of funds, Richelieu was the perfect foil for the Habsburgs, and he helped tip the balance against them. Without Richelieu, had he died anticlimactically of pneumonia with so much ahead of him, the Habsburgs could have had free reign to implement their vision of victory, and it's likely that without Richelieu in place, French forces would have helped, rather than hindered, their Habsburg neighbours. So that's the final question for alternative reality there, and that kind of brings us to the end of this Q&A for the 30 Years' War, so I hope you've enjoyed it. We did get a good few questions, and I tried to sort through the ones which I thought you would all find the most interesting, and we got a few double questions as well, so if they seemed particularly pressing, I made a point of actually addressing them here. We can, of course, do more Q&As in the future, but I didn't want to keep you guys locked up here for too long, so I thought I'd keep it short-ish and sweet-ish. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you have any questions in the future, make sure to send them to me and I'll answer them privately, and not on the forum of When Diplomacy Fails. But again, thanks for joining me. Q&As are something I find really fun, and I love when you guys engage so directly with me and send me your pressing questions. It also helps me double-think about things and approach things differently and explain ideas and issues and characters in more detail. Because of my inherent nerdiness, I sometimes forget that you guys aren't as obsessed about this conflict as I am and that I sometimes do have to elaborate more on issues which I kind of just gloss over. Or when my eyes just glaze over when thinking about economics or that kind of thing, I realise you guys are interested in that stuff, so yes, in the future I'll do my best to kind of address them. But that's going to do it for this Q&A. Thank you very much for joining me, and make sure to join me next week when we will be starting up our 30 Years War narrative series again by returning to the story with episode 19. I really appreciate over the last four weeks all the support and love you guys have shown me. It's been brilliant. We've got a good few new listeners here on board, so now that you're all hopefully well informed, you'll be well on your way to join us with the narrative next week. Otherwise, don't forget guys, we do have a special offer going on on Patreon where you can join up for the year and get two months for free. And that offer is only going until October, so make sure and snap that up now if you want. All funds raised, go straight to my college fees, which are considerable. So I'd really appreciate it if you put off signing up all this time and you thought about signing up recently but never really got around to it. I'd really appreciate if you did that pronto so that I could send all that money to Trinity and they could stop bothering me with all those late fee-paying emails. But having said all that, I will now take my leave. Thanks again so much for everything, guys. You're the best history friends a guy could ask for and you make doing this on a regular basis so rewarding and so worthwhile. But for now, my name is Zach. This has been a Q&A on the 30 Years' War. And you've been fab. Thanks so much for joining me and for listening. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.